Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Michael Winnick, founder and CEO of DScout. In this episode, Michael talked about how user research has changed over the years and how data analytics and user research teams should work together to get the maximum ROI. Michael then dove into how to fight your internal bias when it comes to user research, how DScout drives growth by doubling down on creating human relationship capital, and what they do to prevent champion departure churn. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable and growing. Strategies, tactics and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael. And here's today's episode. Hey, Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, how are you, man? I'm very good, thanks. Uh, for the listeners, Michael is the founder and CEO of DScout, a remote research platform helping businesses efficiently capture thoughts, reactions, and behaviors in the moment as they happen. Michael and the team recently raised 70 million to fuel their growth. And Michael started out his career as a product marketer at Wired and then moved on to serve as director of product development in guru.com. Before starting Discard, Michael was the managing partner at Gravity Tank, a design-led innovation consultancy. So my first question for you, Michael, is what has been the biggest change you have noticed in the user research market since founding Discard over 10 years ago? You've been in the space a while. Sure. Yeah, I'd say when we started Discard, I'm not sure there was a market. <laughs> so the biggest change is there, there is one now, which is really, really exciting. Um, you know, classic founder, you know, I had challenges of my own and saw opportunity started the company and then kind of faced the reality that there wasn't really a market there yet right so we were still in the age where everyone was like steve jobs doesn't need research you know <laughs> so things sure. come out beautifully out of his head you know why do you why do you need to research anything you know and so really we i think that the biggest change has been this general belief and acceptance of research that's come up um i actually really think it's similar to transition I saw earlier in my career around design, right? So I actually went to design school uh, before I before I joined Gravity Tank. And, you know, at that time, um, you know, my early days in software development, people were like, do you really need designers to make software? Yeah. No, you don't, right? Just an engineer can do that, right? And so uh, really, um, there was a skepticism. And now it seems ludicrous, right? Can you imagine designing it, like making any software where you didn't have someone with design skills doing it, it'd yeah. be crazy, right? So uh, research has kind of gone through the same transition and in part because of design, because I think research is kind of, um, I kind of always call it like design's nerdy cousin or, or sibling, right? So wherever design goes, research tends to follow behind because what happens is uh, organizations as they make this giant investment in, in design, right? So you see certain organizations spending a half a billion dollars a year building their design teams, teams of thousands of designers. They hire them, they get them going. And then immediately they're like, um, well, uh, how do we actually get a return from this investment, right? Good design yeah. is as much about asking questions and understanding context as it is about moving boxes around on the screen. For sure. And I think, how do we get a return on that investment? That's also like a question that, that needs to be answered still in the research space. And I think people are doing better and better jobs of it all the time, but it is one of those areas. It's still a question. I also see like you saw it, like the design space. I see like a similarity as well in how companies like jumped on big data in the early days. And it almost feels like 
user research and it's like having its prime time now after people have gone on this crusade of like data, 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 we need to be data driven. And then slowly starting to realize, okay, like it's not just data alone that uh, drives the full picture, but having that additional context and actually speaking to users is where. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I think there's an interplay between the two, right? Everything in our organizations, I think, and when organizations are healthy are about kind of creating cultures of curiosity. And ultimately what data always asks, what, when you look at data, it always leads to more questions. Right? Yeah. And the base, the most basic question is why, <laughs> right? So someone start, you know, we, we can see that there's a cohort that started using our product and stopped using it. Why? Right. The yeah. data really will struggle to tell you why it will give you signals, but ultimately to fill that picture in, you need to go ask and talk to and interact with real people. And then often you need to go back to the data with another insight of an area to go dig and drill into and then back to talking to humans, right? There's this kind of interplay between kind of the different styles of thinking and different types of analysis you need to do. For sure. I feel though, unfortunately, we're not really there yet where like this is the norm. This is like an edge case, at least in my experience, seeing like companies that really understand the value of this and doing it really, really well. Whereas I still feel like we have this big siloed effect where we have research on one end and we have uh, data analytics on another, um, but it's really like this interaction and this play that you, you're mentioning now that where the real value comes in and uh, having the maximum ROI you get from both of these teams when they're working together. You started 10 years ago, you said uh, it came sort of from your own need and I'm assuming as well, like it feels like you have a natural uh, path into DSCART as well from um, sure. your, your role previously as the managing partner, but maybe talk us a little bit through like what was the early day inclination that said to you, okay, there's something here, like I need to get on this and start building discounts. Sure. Yeah. Research has kind of been a through line throughout my career. I actually started, as you mentioned, in product marketing and product management um, in the early heydays of the web. Um, and then I went to design school and then I kind of um, was involved in this innovation consultancy, a lot like an IDEO and kind of throughout all of those roles, I was always felt like the, I was always attracted to what I call like the existential questions of like a product or a service. Like why are people using it? Who is using it? Um, you know, uh, what are their alternatives? These kind of really basic questions. And so I started early in my career doing research like really, really poorly. Really yeah. poorly, right? Right. Like I might have done one of the first surveys on the web. That's how long I've been doing research, right? So, so way back uh, when I was working at Wired. Um, and so I started doing it poorly, um, but always kind of found that that was the signal that I wanted. It was hard to, I could hear the internal stakeholders really well and really clearly. Yeah. Right. Because they were in my ear all the time. Right. So it was really hard to get this, to understand kind of the view of the outside world, which ultimately, you know, our success really, really hinges on. So I started doing research there. Uh, went, got a, a degree in effectively design thinking before that was even a phrase, right? So I was kind of uh, in the early days and then um, joined Gravity Tank where I really started building kind of a craft and expertise around how to understand humans and use that as kind of the fountainhead for, for innovating, right? So we had built this great team of anthropologists and researchers and it was kind of always where we started started the work, right? Um, yeah. It was kind of our grounding, grounding motion. And, you know, we, we got good at it, but was, it was really like the definition of not scalable, right? If you could, if you could picture something not scalable, it would be that it was like flying humans around the world. Uh, it was, uh, incredibly logistically time intensive, complex. And so you could really only apply it to things like what's going to be our smart port smartphone portfolio for the next five years. Right. These yeah. kind of really big questions that are very episodic. Um, and so kind of what I saw with really the rise of smartphones and AI was this break uh, where all of a sudden we could kind of take this niche skill set, which we could apply to maybe kind of uh, a small set of things and say, how do we take this deeper context driven way of understanding? And now we can actually apply it to anything because all of a sudden everybody has this thing in their pocket. So we have access now. Right now it's a question of how do we get that access, get the permission, how do we analyze the data? And generally, you know, D-Scout's always been a story around 
uh, democratization and access, right? So again, starting with this really niche craft and then kind of seeing it expanding. And so that's really what motivated me to kind of start the company um, and to kind of explore, kind of get up, get on this journey. Now, maybe, you know, 10 years ago and someone said, hey, you know, it's going to be 10 years and you're still going to be in the early days. I don't know. I might have been like, okay, <laughs> okay, man, maybe I'll do something else. But I feel like, um, you know, SaaS companies are an ultra marathon, right? So um, really excited about where we've gone to, uh, but, and also just learned so much through the journey, you know, about uh, my, myself, my team, you know, the market. Um, I've, I've learned a ton. So really, really enjoying it. Excited to be at this point, uh, but also, like I said, it's, it's, it's really been a journey. So. Yeah, it, it definitely, it sounds like it's been a journey, but it, on the other end, it sounds like now is the time, like when you're getting started, like you've got to the start line now and now it's the time to like run the race. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, in the prep, yeah, the prep work up yeah exactly. A couple of big transition points. I feel like we're, we're at another one that's really exciting now. Um, probably hit, hit the first one about five years ago where we kind of had our first real big inflection point. So. Uh, but but really excited about kind of like you said the world is kind of coming to this way of thinking and this way of understanding and i think it's becoming much more mission critical um and i yeah. think uh, so that's a really exciting place to be cool you mentioned uh bad research and uh you have been uh, the victim of, or you were uh, the one big bad research. I was a perpetrator. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's be clear. Yeah. What have, uh, let's say like, what has been one of your two biggest learnings when it comes to research and like the biggest mistake? Uh, uh I, I'd say that, I mean, over time I've gone from, uh, you know, the very naive from the, from the bunny hill to, you know, double diamond expert research. Right. So I've gone from, I've, 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 become a good, a, a good researcher over time. Um, I think that uh, probably my biggest learnings are, uh, how to, I guess, two things. One is when you get good at research, you start understanding it's almost like a medium, just like any creative process where you start understanding the tools and the space and how to employ the tools to kind of get to the outcome that you want. Right. So you kind of learn the craft. Um, and that took, that, that can be hard to learn, take a long time to learn the craft. Um, and so I think that some of it was just developing that skill and having seen enough patterns. Um, so that, that's kind of one of the big areas of learning or growth. I think when you want to kind of get to being expert level on the other side, I think it's simply research is always, you know, this, this battle between your biases, your intuition, and what's going on and to be able to kind of have that interplay because ultimately, you know, one of the big misconceptions I see all the time, Andrew, is people are, you know, people come to me and they'll say, and I'm sure they say this to you, right? Is Dscout going to generate the insight? And I'm like, no, it, no, the insight is literally something that happens in your brain. The insight is literally a connection between synapses in your head, right? That's what an insight is. The power of an insight is usually a good insight often sounds pretty dumb, right? It's, it's the way it resonates in you, right? And so I think learning about this interplay of what's going on in the world, how do I kind of reduce my own biases or kind of seeing through like my little lens of, of the world? How do I pull that down? But at the same time, how do I interpret that, right? Make a connection and then apply it. And that, I think that learning that that's that's a that's a tricky little dance to learn but i think learning that is is kind of critically important yeah i i see a lot of similarities as well when it comes to like experimentation from a data perspective and uh, when you go into like running an experiment or conducting research it's really about the learning and not about proving your hypothesis and i think that's like one of the things like you it's a challenge fighting that bias internal like you think you have a hunch or you think you know something and you're trying to prove it and that's not the right way to start it's really about like okay. yeah it's, it's a tough thing especially you know um for product oriented people you know we often have a lot of shortcuts right so um, we're listening it's hard to we're listening for certain things so it's hard to kind of put that down a little bit yeah. but also like i said you need to also have the context to understand what's what's really relevant, you know? So I used to always say like, when we, in the gravity tank days, we would do 
kind of more classic in-home ethnographic research, right? It yeah. was like, people were so sensitized, you know, you'd bring along people observing the research and they'd be like, wow, you know, is that person sitting on a couch? You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, a, that's like what humans do. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, this, there's this funny dance of just finding, uh, finding that openness, right? Um, and then, but also learning how to apply it in the, in the context that you're operating. So. The bias is like a really, really hard thing to do. Do you have any sort of cues or tips, like when you feel that you're getting biased or do you have anything's going into a study, which you just sort of like help set the stage of what your biases are internally? Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of approaches. I think there's obviously training. And the more you can do some basic training around biases um, in terms of learning what are some classic mental biases as well as other forms of bias, um, the more you can you can do a little bit of training before and it's helpful to make it kind of more of a conscious process, right? Because I think we all have bias and uh, many, many things that we do, research is, is no different. Um, so that, so that's, that's kind of just a starter. I think uh, when you're doing research, I think the most... Um, Kind of the most important step that's often under-recognized is analysis. So often kind of what happens, especially in classic research, is you kind of go from interviewing somebody to like, I have the, I have the insight, right? Like you kind of say like, oh, we're doing the interview. Great. Here's, here's what we should go do. That is a pretty dangerous step to make um, if you're trying to do good, solid research, because ultimately... That, that act of taking your information and organizing it and then looking at the patterns in it um, starts giving you a sense or am I really just jumping on one or two things? Am I seeing, am I seeing the whole correctly? Am I kind of um, understanding the broader pattern? So I think doing analysis, which is like a, a little bit of a hard skill to learn, but doing analysis is really important. I think there's some tools in the world that can help you with that. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I can think of one or two, perhaps. And, and I think the other, um, I also think it's healthy sometimes to have someone else look at your analysis. Another human, right? So uh, to get kind of a clean read uh, can be really helpful if you're concerned about your biases uh, too prominently. I think the, la the last comment I'd say is there are just some really good basic questioning techniques that are kind of important. So for instance, um, starting with pretty open-ended questions, right? And letting, uh, when you're, whether you're do, doing um, moderated or unmoderated methodologies, not just jumping right into like your area, right? Starting, starting the frame wide enough that you can, someone might just uh, kind of take it where they want to go versus necessarily the, the specific area that you're interested in. Yeah. Uh, uh, this was actually one of my biggest, I'd say failures when it came to research in the past was we went to like a startup live weekend. Uh, so it was like a hackathon we came up with a few ideas. And I remember like part of the weekend, we, we started going out and doing a little bit of research because essentially yeah. it was a game. There was three words. You had to pick three words and then come up with a business idea from these three words. And then, oh, nice. so we went out and like, we had like clean, um, washing i can't remember it was clean fun and washing or something like this anyway and i went around and we had this idea that you would have a bracelet that if you were cleaning it would be tracking you'd be earning points and then you'd win prizes and the research we did when we went around to people at the place was like if you had to do you enjoy cleaning and everybody said no i hate it and it's like would you enjoy cleaning more if you won prizes and then everyone said yes i'd enjoy cleaning more if i won prizes uh, and then we were like, oh, so everybody wants our solution. This was like about eight yeah, yeah. years ago, you know, Absolutely. it's like, it makes total sense, but like, no, like people are incredibly bad at predicting future behavior one and two, like it was so biased, the questioning and the line yeah. of answers, like it was impossible to get a no on the other end. <laughs> yeah. It's this funny thing too, where I think as you learn more research techniques, um, so, so one is like live critique, right? Like better when I can get people to do something. So yeah. even if it's, I can make an obstacle course, like, Hey, you've got this little bracelet. I'm going to have you go clean. And then I'm going to like announce prizes to you, right? Like that, that becomes better when it's a real simulation and people are trying to act something out, right. Or you're kind of trying to do it, you know, yeah. uh, with, with tools like these guys, you could actually do that whole thing in their house. You could just fake the whole thing. Right. Um, so I'm really into sending people props or trying to make anything feel realer than just like, That's awesome. would you do X or would you do Y now? 
there's also this, this kind of orthodoxy in research of like, we shouldn't ask people if they want something. I'm, I totally disagree with that. I'm fine asking people if they want something. I'm just going to be skeptical about the response. Not because I think people are lying. I just think people are people are complicated. Like you're, as you said, like we, we have a tough time predicting our future actions. Right. But yeah. I'm fine asking people if they want things or what they might like or not like. It's just having the lens to know that humans are complicated creatures and we shouldn't overprivilege that response. Right. So just because they say they want X doesn't really maybe mean that they're going to want do it, it. Right. So it's, it's yeah. kind of taking that learning enough about like, and you know, I always have this other general approach, which is like really being real about like, what can humans answer? Right. What are, what are, what are good challenges for humans? So for instance, humans are really good at like A or B sorts of questions. Like, uh, here's option A, here's option B. Tell me which option resonates with you and why that's that humans can do that pretty well. If I have options A through E and I'm going to rank them, I don't trust humans to do that well. <laughs> I'm very skeptical yeah. that we can take five con conceptual options and come up with like a meaningful ranking and sorting of those. I think I can do head to head pretty well as an example. Yeah. So that's anything on the comprehension side uh, is required like one or two things versus five things. It's just like um, the capacity to yeah. focus as well in the moment and pick up new topics. Um, yeah, no, from our side, it was like a very bad, we actually ended up winning the competition. We came second that weekend as a result uh, of this. I'm sure you did. Of course. Uh, of course and you did. we actually got so. accepted to start a bootcamp. And I remember like we arrived at start a bootcamp with this idea, uh, like three yeah. of us, we quit our jobs. And then the very first meeting we had with the managing director is like, uh, you guys have an amazing team, but your idea is absolute shit. And we were like, <laughs> we've all just quit these jobs. We've like packed our bags. We flown to another country. Wow, and this is that's like a crazy spot. story. But yeah. yeah, it was good times. We learned a lot uh, in the process, though, I guess. Uh, so you've had a big announcement now uh, recently, just raised 70 million. Uh, but I'm sure along the way, there's been some uh, forks in the road. And you mentioned like there's been a couple of big turning points. Um, is there any turning points like where you saw like related to general attention for the topic of the show that would be interesting to chat about? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that... Um... Kind of the the first, I mean, when I started D-Scout, um, it was so early in the market, we didn't really know exactly um, what the shape of the business is going to be like. You know, I was a profoundly underprepared founder. <laughs> so, you know, I barely knew what SaaS, uh, what SaaS meant, right? So in the early days, we really spent a lot of time. I, we think we, we knew there was a need. We knew we had a product, but getting to a business model that would make everything work was hard. That took a while. And, and so I think that, um, really it took four or five years to get to the point where we were like, oh, we know how to make a business out of this. Right. And so that really started us down the road of, of kind of the SAF subscription model. And, you know, in the early days, you know, we, uh, we sold, I want to say our first, you know, six to 10 subscriptions that were of decent size and, and we had no churn, right? Not yeah. for, for, for the first, you know, year or two. And, you know, um, I think where we really started learning is when the first cases of churn started to crop up, right? It really made us start want paying more, you know, I think I became much more familiar with like, oh, this is really, really important. Like in this, in this world, in this business model, this is about the most important thing is our ability to drive. I mean, I flip it, the retention side, ability to drive retention and drive growth. It's kind of the essence of this, of this model. We have to pay a lot yeah. more attention. I remember sitting with our leadership team. Uh, we had called it at the time farming. How do we become good farmers? You know, um, and we, we went to a organic farm. Uh, to actually have like a workshop, you know, six of us, uh, it was, was kind of cool. It was a crazy building on the South side of Chicago. We kind of saw this whole thing about agriculture and we started kind of working on it. Uh, but you know, really the early days, it was kind of learning how to, like I said, um, given my utter lack of relevant experience, right. Really learning about, about skills and, and capabilities. And I'd say that, you know, that was a significant fork in the road in terms of how we started to staff our business and build our business. Like we are very 
heavyweight in terms of how we use account management and, and support and, and success in terms of driving our growth. So if you kind of looked at our go to market motion, it's, it's, there's, there's a lot focused on the back. Um, we're actually pretty, pretty light on the front, um, heavier on the back to ensure that our customers are having, uh, great experiences that we're learning from them and that we're actually driving sustained growth. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you, at this point, so the early days, were you just doing like pay per use sort of model and, um, pay what you use and then eventually sort of, okay, let's like, see what we can do with subscription. Scott went. Yeah, I think we were, we were playing around with service models, pay-per-use models, um, and then, and, and subscription models. And we really got uh, committed to driving our subscription model, um, around 20, around 2015 is kind of when we really kind of started to say, this is the way we're going to grow this business. This is how this business works. And it was a reflection too, of, you know, the investment in this as a category, um, you had kind of mentioned this earlier, it sometimes categories start, you know, bottoms up, they start kind of in like smaller, more nimble companies that are in, you know, kind of some categories tend to start. And, and I think this category has been pretty different. It's really started top down, meaning the largest organizations in the largest innovators in the world, really yep. have made the most significant investments in design and in research. And so it's kind of started differently. And so the model had to match the customer as well, right? So things again, might be different, you know, are different today. The, the category is evolving quickly, right? Like I, it wouldn't be a weird at all now to have a team of 10 and have a research person on it or a team of 20, you know, a decade ago, that would, that just wouldn't, wouldn't happen. happen. Right. So, yeah, but I definitely see that as well in this space, uh, what you're alluding to in the sense that it is a, definitely a top-down uh, approach still. I wouldn't even say it's changed that much. Like it's getting better, but it's still not there at the point where everybody sort of sees this sure. as a day-to-day -day, uh, necessity to grow. I, mean, I would guess if you were to do it, you would still see, I mean, if you look at just the, the largest tech companies in the world and the scale of their research teams, yeah. you know, the, the difference is really stark when you look at kind of that tier and the next tier now, right? So you're talking about, you know, hundreds or thousands of researchers at those companies and other companies, you know, you're going to see, you know, a much, much smaller populations. Yeah. And it's typically quite late as well that I've seen like companies, at least in experience now is like 60 to 80 employees is where somebody says, okay, we need a researcher to come on board now to help with all this product and design work. Um, yep. I don't know if you see anything similar from your side, but that's sort of where I see like the sweet spot inflection point where people, someone gets introduced. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think it's changing. Like I said, I think it's changing. I think, I think, um, but in general, I still think uh, it's not, uh, it's not the norm to bring it in early. It's kind of an assumed, and, and I think it is a tension in the space. It's, it's, it's an assume. it's kind of assumed that in earlier stage companies that this that this is something that the team kind of has to know how to do, or that the founder has the founders, to do it, yeah. you know, but that really raises the bar for founders. I'd say that because of those bias traps, I'd say founders suffer the biggest challenges, myself included, I'm sure you included many of your guests, we suffered the biggest challenges in that because, um, kind of the, the, we, we have to have a lot of conviction in what we're creating. But sometimes that conviction can be like critically blinding, right? How do you, how do you work through that, right? Like it's really important that you do, but it just creates, you know, I think it creates a lot of almost like inner turmoil for founders, right? So I actually think having a second set of eyes there that's a little more dispassionate uh, would be tremendously helpful in a lot of smaller orgs. For sure. No, I definitely feel that as well. I think luckily, like with me and my co-founder. We like sometimes have differing opinions and those differing opinions really help us like ground ourselves yeah. and just sort of question things quite a bit uh, and be able to have those discussions, I think helps because yeah, definitely like you get the blunders on at some point and like, uh, it doesn't matter uh, like, how much research you do, like the biases that you have internally just guide you down a path. Uh, but yeah, uh, right. but that think muscle, also, you, you know, the nature of, sorry. Yeah. The nature of entrepreneurialism is often. Um, we all understand that some, there's this fine line between our conviction can make reality. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, now 
fall prey to that and you have a lot of disastrous situations when it doesn't happen but that is part of the of the dilemma so for sure so introduced then uh, subscriptions now to the business 2015 started to see things uh, moving along quite nicely there you mentioned that you have quite a heavy focus on the back end what does that look like what does that mean uh, in practical terms yeah, I think uh, one of the, what it really means is that we've made uh, substantial investments in building out our kind of account account management success and support functions. Um, what we found is that um, those investments are really critical in terms of kind of creating the right engagement for our customers and kind of driving the sort of growth that, that we want to see, right? So um, I think we've been fortunate that the business model affords us the and the, the scale of the investments that companies are making with us affords us the ability to kind of take that approach um but i think it's just been critical to kind of say that hey you know what like um while um in in our model we found that that kind of creating enough uh, human relationship capital has been really important to kind of driving the growth and scale that we want to see um, in terms of, in terms of our customer relationships. So, you know, I think that, um, yeah, anyways, we can jump to the next thing. Yeah. So you're spending a lot of time there really just trying to build up that customer success support muscle, making sure you're supporting these customers as they're growing. One of like a common theme we see as well in a risk of churn, it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this for companies is when customer champions leave. Uh, sure. So when you have a good yeah. customer champion in and they end up leaving. Uh, we've discussed this a couple of times on the show before. Is this a similar pattern that you see? And like, is this something that you're trying to tackle internally and how are you doing it? Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a, it's um, certainly um, one of the kind of dri like drivers of churn factors when we kind of look at why people churn out um, champion, champion departure, what we call like a narrow root system. Right. So if we have like only one or two roots in an organization and, and especially today, great resignation, and lots of job change, right. Um, we, we kind of put, uh, put the account at risk. So I think that, um, you know, what's interesting is, uh, the other, so, so obviously we spend a lot of time and attention looking at how do we broaden the root system inside of, inside of organizations and what are motions that enable that and prevent that. There's this interesting thing with champions where. There's these champions that are uh, true champions in terms of like, they're going to spread and bring people in. And then there's champion gatekeepers, which is another variant of a champion, which is, which is actually pretty difficult to deal with. It's kind of the person that's like, this is my thing and I'm going to kind of protect it. And actually I'm going to get annoyed when you're actually bringing other people in. Right. So, so there's this pretty interesting and pretty interesting dance there uh, to kind of work through, you know, but I think it's actually you know, one of the areas we, um, we spend a lot of time on kind of with our account management team in particular, um, is actually what I kind of tell you, like, I think try to get the, the re what I call the researcher mindset infused in how we attack these problems, not just with researchers, but even like, how do our account managers run a QBR? You know, um, is it a QBR where you're like, Hey, here's the presentation. Here's the data we see. Where are you with? this initiative, that initiative, we want to know, I'm always trying to work with them to say, Hey, let's, let's actually, let's, let's act like a researcher in this call. Let's start really open-ended with them. What's going on, uh, you know, with you, uh, how's what's going on with your team? Um, how do you think we're doing right? Really? Let, let's kind of start there. Right. Um, so there's a lot of work. Um, if you were going to, you know, um, we noticed that we have a small, a group of people that we're working with in your team, you know, if we were going to, um, you know, tell me, tell me why that's the case. Yeah. So, things like that. Right. So, so that's, that's a big, that, that's a big goal of ours. Um, certainly, um, in terms of just how we're interacting with customers in general, but especially in this champion case, I think trying to understand actually back to the basics. Why, why is that going on? Yeah. Um, is there something, in, um, organizationally going on there? Is it something with their teams? Is something with us? Sometimes SaaS business model can actually get in the way of creating the right organizational engagement, right? So if you're 
too rigid with your seat model or you've sold to this part of the organization, but not, you know, something that can go horizontal, right? There's a lot of tricks uh, where we can kind of become the own, like our own inhibitors to our growth. So. Yeah, I like that. And having them think more like researchers rather than just like delivering a, a QBR in general. And I think you get a lot more value then from the calls, both for yourself and for the clients at the end of the day, yeah. because you understand how to help them better. And uh, you also understand how you can help your business better at the end of the day. Yeah, I try to do it all the time, just even for my own leadership and management. I kind of, I kind of think about literally like I'm putting on a researcher hat mm -hmm. for this set of interactions. And in that, what that means is I'm going to try to be quieter. I'm going to try to really like ask these start with broader questions. Yeah. I'm going to kind of like guide people. I'm not giving them a presentation. I'm giving them stimuli. I'm giving them things to react to. I'm going to see how they're reacting. So for instance, like how is it that not every sales call has a card sort in it? Yeah. The, you know what I'm saying? The basic research technique of like card sort, put A together with B. Imagine a card sort technique when you're starting your sales calls. I try to get my team to do these. It's like, here's eight things we can talk about today. Can you put these into two groups? What are the things you want to talk about that you think are really important? Think about how much better that is as an actual sales interaction with actual data, right? <laughs> Meaning yeah. Versus like, I'm just going to pound a presentation down your throat or even worse. You know, I'm going to interrogate you for 20 minutes, which I hate, right, as a sales technique to to kind of qualify you as a lead, you know? Yeah, there is definitely uh, that qualification side of things is one of my like pet peeves, I think, with sales uh, teams is sure. like, uh, but on the other end as well, like I see similarly, like I try to approach it in like at least the sales calls from more learning perspective, like really just trying Absolutely. to understand and then see where you can deliver value. But I really like that as a mental model though, for everything, like going into meetings with your team and just really like you know, putting that researcher's hat on and uh, trying to understand as opposed to like- Yeah, there's a funny, there's this old, really old book uh, in design thinking uh, called Edward de Bono had this idea of thinking hats. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's a crazy technique, but it's, yeah. it's cool. You can kind of like, you wear different color hats, like just mentally put them on and like, like the yellow hat, I think is like the optimist hat. Right. And then like the black hat is basically the skeptic. Right. And like, there, so there's these different roles. And I think that, um, so it's this design thinking technique, which you can use in meetings to kind of like basically get your skeptic to wear the yellow hat and get your op, like you kind of flip people's, you know, flip people around a little around. bit. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really interesting as a, as a technique, but I didn't think about again, but okay. Hey, I got a researcher hat. Sometimes I got to wear the CEO hat, you know? which has its own things with it. But often I'm kind of, I feel like often I'm doing my best CEOing when I'm wearing a researcher hat and not kind of the, the CEO hat where I'm kind of listening and quiet and then assembling information and making sense of it versus responding and reacting like in that moment with like, here's the answer. We got to go do X, Y, and Z, right? Like, yeah. And that I feel personally is when I, I feel like sometimes I'm doing my, my best job right. for, for my team and our, and our customers. That's very cool. We chatted about something very recently as well on similar lines with David Dominant from uh, Hotjar uh, and sort of his leadership style around like giving the team the freedom as well to be able to do their own work and then learn their own mistakes on their own. Uh, it's not exactly sure. what you're saying, but it comes into sort of that mindset. It was really just like uh, not always being there to give the answers immediately, but be able to sort of take in, digest, and then uh, yep. react once you have like the full picture. Right. Uh, I see we're running up on time, so I want to make sure I save time for a um, couple of questions to ask every guest that joins the show. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you join a new company, Turner Retention is not doing well at this company at all. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Michael, you're in charge. We've got 90 days to fix this. Things are a mess. Um, what do you do? But here's the catch. You're not going to tell me I'm going to go speak to customers, figure out what the pain points are, and then start there. You're just yeah. going to use something that you've seen that's been effective previously in a company that you worked at for reducing churn fast. What would you run with? What would be the playbook? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I think actually I, I was going to do a flip on that and say, uh, to me, especially in the early days, 
it's actually, um, the goal is focusing on retention and not churn. So actually start with where we're really resonating and connecting with people and understand that because, you know, if you think about building a company, it's actually about like taking a small fire and kind of like giving it the right kindling and growing it and growing it kind of over time. So I care less actually about the negative. I'd amplify the positive to be like, why are we resonating in any, why isn't everyone churning? Yeah. Does that make sense? So where we're, where we're succeeding, what's the characteristics of that success? What's driving that? What's going on well there? Sales team, how do we get more of that going? How do we kind of amplify that? How do we take them the understanding and see, great, now in the places that we're churning, uh, how can we start telling these stories? Why is the connection not the same? But I'd start with the retention and not the churn. And I'd start with the where we're resonating and succeeding. And like I said, try to amplify that characteristic and understand that more than where we're failing. Yeah, I love that. Uh, it's actually the, I use the same analogy with the, the firewood uh, and thinking about like building a SaaS business in the early yeah. days, like you need like sort of the, um, fire starters, uh, to get things going. And those might be like the ones that come in and burn out very quickly over time. You're going to get the logs that are going to keep the fire burning and uh, growing over time. So, uh, it's, it's very, very cool. Um, What's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? I think it took me a long time. I think it's always a journey of learning and there's still so much to learn about it. I can actually, I'll ask you a question <laughs> about that, but I'd say that like, I think really separating, um, understanding there's kind of different types of retention and churn and I think for a long time as a company, we're really focused on revenue retention as like the met as the key measure and understanding that that's a pretty lagging indicator, uh, that we have to kind of focus on usage and user retention as much more leading indicators and spending, um, creating as much it's, it's hard in an organization, especially an organization with financial goals to create as much heat and light around that. Um, as, as around when the, when someone leaves because of money. So I think, I think that's something that I think, uh, we can be better at that I've learned is important, you know, just like every organization, you know, we use NPS, although researchers hate NPS. So ha sometimes we get an NPS score that's really low because they're like, NPS is terrible as a metric. Yeah. Um, but it's to me, the thing that I love the way our organization responds to NPS is that we actually don't care so much about the aggregate score, but man, does it drive our, like it creates every time we get a negative score, the whole company sees that individual score. Yeah. And there's usually like a conversation, what's going on there? Why is that the case? And I love that energy, you know? Yeah. Um, as opposed to, like I said, the aggregate is going up or going down or yeah. Yeah. And also just this idea of, you know, it, it gives us a, a, a leading feel or a more visceral feel of what's going on in the account. So like I said, I guess big, big picture to simplify is separating out, um, the, the churn that's a really lagging indicator from the churn that starts telling us a story about what's, what's really going on at a time, what we may, what might actually be able to impact it. So. Yeah. So focusing more on the leading indicators uh, that lead to the output, final output metric. It's, it's very interesting, um, the, the whole topic. And like, I think it's something that you evolve and learn over time. Like there's always something to learn about churn and retention. Like yeah, I'm now absolutely. 152 episodes in and there's still times like I'm on episodes like, oh, I've never heard that before. That's interesting. Like, uh, how did they yeah, come curious, up? I mean, even from your standpoint, I think this question of how to really look at even we were just debating this yesterday. How do we look at what is the right user engagement profile and how do we measure that in a way that, um, effectively we can evaluate it over time consistently. So for instance, we're playing around with those metrics right now to try to look at, okay, is it, um, do we want to look at. Um, you know, like uh, a metric like Mal is kind of use useless for us. It's, I mean, it's fine, yeah. but it's a pretty vanity metric, but so how do we, what's the Mal version of 
of retention look like? Is that, you know, we're playing with, is it um, MRUs, monthly return users? Is it QRUs? Is it gap between significant activities in terms of time? Like what's a, what's a way to measure um, that so we can actually have a metric that we can, we can focus our teams on, right? So again, something literally reading Something a bunch of blogs on that yesterday, right? Trying to understand what are one of the ways people are doing this that's actually going to be applicable in kind of a in a in a SaaS model. So the the one actually comes to mind that I enjoyed listening to the most on this topic was with Heidi uh, from she was a GoDaddy at the time. I think she moved on now to uh, Typeform. Um, but essentially, we were talking about GoDaddy, how they went about figuring out like what was a leading indicator for retention. And I think this is basically churner retention in general, though. It's like people only churn when they don't get value delivered. Uh, so if you can really figure out what that value metric is that uh, sure. is driving them, that's the only thing that really matters is like, are they doing X action or are they getting Y? And GoDaddy were in a fortunate position where like they had this website builder and they were trying to keep customers retained for the website builder. and so they first thought, okay, it's like people coming in and changing their website or whatever, updating or thing. And then they realized, okay, people don't have a website because um, they want to come in and make changes. They want to get visitors. So then they moved to visitors was the main thing. Like, are our customers getting visitors? And then they said, okay, but people don't have a website because they want visitors. People want sales. And they were fortunate that they had this data available, but they were like, okay, we have a template for online store. We have a template for booking. So like, our metric is if it's a hair salon, we want to know how many bookings they're doing a month. Like if it's a uh, thing, we want to, and like that's all they focus on. And then they reverse engineered all the behavior to like, how can we increase these metrics and these numbers? Because this is ultimately why they're coming to us to begin with. And if we know that we're keeping true on that side of the bargain and we're delivering on our promise that they've come to us for, um, it's not always easy in every business though. I think like uh, there's nuances and, uh, but yeah. For me, from my perspective, I think that's where like I would really want to focus is uh, what is the main value? Why did they come to? I'm going to go listen to that uh, kind of uh, soon after we talk. So, so very cool. Uh, but yeah, so thanks very much, Michael. It's been a pleasure chatting to you today. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Like, is there anything uh, they should be looking out for now with uh, this new journey now with Scout? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, we're. Um, we're excited. I feel like uh, so much uh, growth and potential uh, in our category. And we're really kind of spending time kind of actually talking about a lot of and, and kind of developing solutions about the things we talked about today, right? So how do we kind of take some of these research capabilities and skills and enable them? So um, a designer, uh, product manager, uh, marketer can uh, kind of execute research that is uh, thoughtful and uh, efficient, right? And, and kind of bring that kind of capability and thinking into, into the way they're doing their jobs. So I think this is a little separate riff, Andrew, but I don't know if you want to put it in uh, somewhere else, but I think it is, I think we probably talked about this before, but I think there's just this interesting, you know, if you kind of think about the vernacular of research, the words, it's pervaded the modern organization everywhere, right? So if you think about what's the, what's the fountainhead for sales, it's like personas, right? What's the fountainhead for, for marketing? It's the buyer. It's like the journey, the buyer's journey, right? What's, what's the fountainhead for engineering? It's like a user stories, right? So we kind of think it's really interesting that the idea of customer centricity is pervaded almost all of the functions that we have in, in organizations, especially kind of technology oriented organizations, but the skill hasn't. Yeah. You know, that's the size actually of the opportunity in the category is the gap between there is a, almost like an unstated belief that this is the way organizations need to be run. Right. Yeah. And to your point, how many organizations are really, when they create a persona, are they actually informed from what's actually happening in the real world versus someone just being like, I think our persona is a, you know, yeah. Rachel, the researcher, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know? How often is it a buyer journey that someone's just like, Oh, I think they do this. And I think they do that. But you know, that's like, I, buyer journeys are insane. Like they're never like that. Right. Like usually buyer journeys are like this giant hairball, you know, and then like a decision pops out the other end, but anyways, you kind of get the point of, yeah. of kind of what I'm trying to say is like, we have, um, this incredible opportunity, um, to really say that, like, what is it with, 
when we can take all of these organizations and the individuals in these roles, what would it be like if we really could infuse all of the work that we do with what feels like meaningful human understanding? Yeah, I love that. Uh, this is something like spoken about quite a bit. And I think one of the ones is actually user personas uh, is one of the very interesting ones where like it crosses over so many different teams. And at some point in the organization, each team has like slightly different definitions of them because they've only done their own little bits and pieces of research, but nobody's ever really done it really well. Um, we did this similarly at Hotjar where we sort of, uh, I went off like as a solo researcher and did the initial work and then realize, okay, like it's not going to effectively grow throughout the organization if you're not bringing in your different counterparts and bringing in different perspectives and it's these silos, but I, I really love like what you mentioned now as well, that like we are doing these artifacts, like we're producing these artifacts of research, but we're not really putting in the right work and producing them in the right way. And the stories that you mentioned, like I've heard countless people just say like, oh, yeah, we just sat down, we had an exercise and we came up with our personas and like, well, how did you come up with them? Well. Uh, the CEO had an idea or like uh, the marketings uh, had a couple of chats with two people and uh, this is it. Yeah, that's what I mean. The need is there. The challenge for the field is how do we then educate? How do we take the responsibility of making it so people can kind of connect? I mean, who, if you talk to anybody, who wouldn't be like, yeah, we would like, we, d we actually would not like more accurate personas. Yeah. No one's no. going to say it, right? Everyone wants that. There's sure. a disconnect in, and it's, it's my responsibility to a degree. It's yours. It's the categories of saying it's our job to create tools and capabilities that enable that accuracy without saying, Hey, it's some like dark magical art that you have to, you know, the, the, some of the things I was saying earlier, like, you know, it's some dark art. You have to spend years learning this craft to apply it, to basically get good at it. Right. But I, I think that's, that's our job is to say, Hey. You know, this is, this is solvable. Uh, we can use, uh, technology and learning to, to, to make, to make this happen. To help so. democratize it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Michael, thanks so much for joining the show. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, it's been great talking to you today. Thanks, I, I love talking to you. I learned a lot today, so I got a couple of things to follow up on. So I really, really appreciate that. Thanks. So I wish you best of luck now going forward as well. Cheers. You too. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.